sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects and uh, you're not impolite to people. No, definitely not, Dad. You know me. I'm never, <laughs> ever controversial or yeah, impolite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Welcome to Conversations with your lovable, never pisses anyone off, ex-Muslim host, Ina, keeping it non-controversial. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to be speaking to you all today. I'm here to discuss some things that have been on my mind a lot lately as an ex-Muslim. The first being criticism of Islam in the era of the rising far right, and the second being the maintenance of an intersection that seems almost mythical in its unattainability, and that is the intersection of being liberal and a person of Muslim background. It seems impossible and lonely enough to maintain that position as a Muslim. And then there are added challenges when you're an apostate, Being of Muslim background in the West right now, in this Trumpian era, is tough enough as it is. But being a secular, non-religious person of Muslim background is a whole other level of fucked up at the moment. So many of us thought there weren't others like us, questioning Islam, questioning conservatism in our communities. Because these things just aren't talked about. The risks are too great, especially if you're living in a Muslim-majority country like Pakistan or Saudi Arabia, which are the two places I've lived. And when, through the internet, we finally found each other, us secular, agnostic, atheist types of Muslim background were just so relieved that there were others, that there was a growing voice for us, that we banded together on something that ultimately doesn't tell you much about a person's values. We all came together under the umbrella of rejecting, challenging religion, one religion specifically. Now, as the political climate changes in the West, we see some cracks in the ex-slash-reformist Muslim movement, more obviously than ever. There are those of us who were coming at it from the angle of opposing conservatism, whatever form it may take generally pushing for more progressive values, and others who were specifically only opposing Islam. As a result, the people who prioritize opposing Islam alone are happy now to ally with the Western right, some even going as far as joining anti-Muslim movements, the alt-right supporting or downplaying Muslim bans that could affect people just like them. Here you see... The flag of the fictional alt-right nation Kekistan being used in an ex-Muslim tweet. It's a spoof of a Nazi flag, actually. You see the term red-pilled being used. A popular term in alt-right circles for choosing uncomfortable truths over ignorance. When in actuality, it indicates quite the opposite. Back in the old country, expressing doubt about religion or challenging cultural boundaries can mean serious consequences at the very least resulting in alienation and being ostracized, disowned, excommunicated. We're not even entirely free from this consequence in the West either. 
And at worst, it means things like blasphemy accusations, lynching, death. So I do understand where the anger and bitterness some have is coming from. I don't excuse it, but I can see what conditions created this generalization and specific paranoia around Muslims. This taboo and loneliness surrounding Islamic apostasy is also why finding others simply to align with you on this one thing feels so big that almost nothing else matters. However, as more and more of us come out and express ourselves, we begin to see the diversity among Islam's apostates too. Still, we are often lumped in as one, and even at times put on an unnecessary pedestal in the Western atheist scene when discussing Islam. I hate to be the one to say it, but ex-Muslims can be wrong in their assessments and opinions of Islam too, like anyone else. And if they're allying with the alt-writers and Kekistanis of this world, then it's increasingly important to see beyond the ex-Muslim means they're infallible when it comes to speaking about Islam view. Ex-Muslims too can overshoot in their criticism or overreact, tainting a movement that began with thoughtful critique. Now we have plenty of takes from former Muslims comparing Islam to Nazism, post-Charlottesville, or even ex-Muslims going on platforms like Rebel Media or Breitbart to express their views in a way that I believe ends up being counterproductive if we want the mainstream to actually absorb legitimate criticisms of Islam. Today, we have an increasingly polarized political environment where the left defensively protects things that are Islam-related, sometimes whitewashing even extreme things like face veils and modesty requirements for women versus the right, which tends to generalize and demonize Muslims as a whole. Either way, sensible criticism of Islam is being lost to extreme defensiveness or conspiracies that portray Muslims as being on a mission to take over and impose Sharia. This is why, as ex-Muslims with perspectives from both inside and outside the faith, I believe we have a responsibility to portray things in a measured and accurate way. Yes, there are huge problems to tackle in our Muslim communities, and so much intolerance. But at the same time, it's important to keep in mind that things aren't always turned up to maximum intolerance. It's key to understand that Islam, nor its adherents, are a monolith. There are all types of people in countries like Pakistan and Saudi Arabia too. People who are struggling to be heard. Further silencing them with generalizations is not only unjust, but achieves the exact opposite if reducing extremism is the goal. Liberal, accepting of apostasy Muslim families do exist there. Mine was one of them. But sadly, they exist in small numbers. It's voices from those minorities that need to be empowered, and yet they so rarely are. Instead, the narrative that Muslims are always conservative rules the airwaves in the West, be it left or right-leaning media. The left with its hijab glorifications and the right with its anti-immigrant Muslim ban talk. It's been incredibly hard to break that mold, and the few instances of people trying to represent the more secular, liberal types of Muslim existence are met with a huge amount of resistance from all across the political spectrum. I mean, 
we already have so much to deal with from within the community that tacking on these external battles simply for a foothold, for a place to say I'm here and I exist are disheartening and exhausting. As if dealing with angry mullahs against fun and freedom wasn't hard enough on its own. The left, the right, Muslims and non-Muslims too, can all be hurdles for secular, liberal, and progressive Muslims. Now, as an ex-Muslim, I still very much consider myself part of the Muslim community. Like any secular Jew would consider themselves connected through culture, shared history, family, holidays, etc. But never before has my need to identify and stand in solidarity with the Muslim community felt more pronounced than in a time Muslim registries and bans are casually being spoken of in mainstream discourse. This is truly terrifying for anyone of Muslim background. When it comes to things like the registry or being barred from entering the U.S., I don't think secular non-believer status matters. And when it comes to hate crimes, I'm pretty sure no one will bother checking how devout you are either. In fact, there have been many victims of anti-Muslim hate crime that just happen to have brown skin. Or not even. Think of those stabbed on a bus in Portland for standing up to an anti-Muslim bigot. All this certainly complicates things for those of us from within who do have legitimate critiques of the community and of Islamic fundamentalism. How do we demand progress in a political climate rife with anti-Muslim sentiment? Homophobia is one such topic that desperately needs to be addressed. The orthodoxy Islam still commands worldwide in its adherence is unmatched by most other mainstream religions in the 21st century. For example, the countries that still carry a potential death penalty for homosexuality are largely Muslim. Three years ago, I wrote and illustrated an anti-homophobia children's book set in Pakistan called My Chacha, or Uncle, is Gay. And I was delighted when it got picked up by some schools in the Toronto area and used as a resource for the Day of Pink, which is an anti-bullying initiative. The book was read out in classrooms and assemblies, and the response was incredibly supportive at first. Then, as parents discovered that not only were their children read an LGBT-positive book, but were read one set in Pakistan, the outrage began. Many claimed it was an assault on their religion, a misrepresentation of it. Some said I was attacking the moral fiber of the Muslim family. I received countless death and rape threats. Some referred to me as wajb al-qatl, worthy of killing. They wished STDs and Sharia punishments of being stoned to death upon my fictional character, Chacha. The most amusing comments called me Satan's daughter or compared my children's book's evilness levels to that of Salman Rushdie's notorious satanic verses. I'm not worthy, but I will take that compliment with pride. In Toronto, a radio show broadcasted calls from angry parents. Some threatened to sue the school board, and predictably, the LGBT-supporting liberal school board backed away from such a book. It was never used in an official capacity again. 
There were warnings being circulated on Islamic sites that people should protect their children from corruption, as they too could be exposed to this gay-turning, soul-sucking, 15-line picture book. This went on for quite some time. Islamic Society of North America published a blog post claiming that the school board was the one bullying parents into teaching their kids about LGBT diversity. I was branded an Islamophobe, and that was it. A resource that many children, teachers enjoyed and found useful was no longer available. When Muslim communities have problems with integration or accepting values like being LGBT positive, the way to tackle that would be precisely through such resources. But often in the face of accusations of Islamophobia, even books about love and tolerance are tossed out as controversial. It's kids who lose out the most. Just recently, a conservative Islamic lecturer with a large following discovered my book and posted on social media about its evil agenda, sending a fresh new batch of threats and haters my way. On the other side of this battle, right-wing non-Muslims accused me of trying to sanitize homophobia in Islam and said that nice gay uncles like this simply didn't exist in Pakistan that I was painting a rosy picture of what it was like to be gay in a Muslim country, that Chacha would have been stoned to death in reality. I mean, it was a fictional children's book, thus obviously simplified to a great degree. I mean, it's incredibly frustrating that if ever people from the Muslim world are challenging things and pushing boundaries, the Western right often wants to pull them back to standards that Islamists would be proud of. For one side, I was an Islamophobe. For the other, a sanitizer of Sharia. And that pretty much encapsulates what it's like to discuss Islam as a liberal ex-Muslim nowadays. Caught between a rock and a hard place. It's like walking a tightrope. You point out there's homophobia in Muslim culture and you risk that being grabbed and used by people who want to ban Muslims. Being liberal and ex-Muslim is an overlap that many days seems unmaintainable. Often you are not accepted by fellow liberals in the West because you're labeled Islamophobic, or you're not accepted by those who are interested in critiques of Islam because those circles are increasingly becoming anti-SJW, anti-feminist, anti-left. Anti-SJW used to mean being against extreme and unreasonable positions in the past. Now it's increasingly used to mean anti-anyone on the left. I mean, at this point, the discussion really seems to have left the grown-up table. What do you do when stuck at this impossible junction? Being liberal and Muslim or ex-Muslim is unacceptable. Invisible, even. And the term Islamophobia only adds to the confusion. The waters are so muddied that this word really does more harm than good. Allowing any criticism of Islamic fundamentalism, homophobia, etc. to be labeled as Islamophobia gives far-right fundamentalist Muslims a chance to shield the religion from valid criticism. It's essentially the same thing as the Christian religious right trying to shield their religion from criticism. Think of the absurdity of the war on Christmas to get a feel for how Islamophobia sounds to us. That's why I prefer the more precise term, anti-Muslim bigotry, 
The problem is not with theological criticisms of Islam or of its literalist interpretations. It is with the hatred and fear-mongering around Muslims. Seeing the confusion surrounding this topic, the Western far-right swoops in to claim that Islamophobia isn't real, even when it's being used to describe blatant anti-Muslim bigotry. The cries of Islam is not a race, while technically true, ring hollow in a climate where brown people are targeted based on their skin color and appearance. And thus, the cycle of confusion continues. Hate crimes against Muslims in Canada increased 253% over four years, according to Global News. So, as anti-Muslim sentiment skyrockets, the emboldened far right here uses this opportunity to gain more support. As the Western far right lashes out at Muslims, the Muslim far right uses that opportunity to also gain more support. And the rest of us are well and truly fucked by them both. Another contentious topic is the hijab, both within Muslim circles and outside. Well-meaning Western liberals tend to overcompensate in their desire to make Muslims feel accepted and can end up championing conservatism from our communities. This is particularly tricky now because Muslim women are, in actuality, being attacked for their modesty garments. So, in the West... It's not exactly on the same footing as something like a Christian purity ball or virginity pledge, though it largely comes from the same place and regard for women. Now, as a woman who grew up in a theocracy, Saudi Arabia, I was forced to wear these modesty garments by the state and have encountered morality police on several occasions. I've seen them hit my mother's ankle with a cane for letting her headscarf slip. The memories are not pleasant. So for me, it's rather distasteful to see the constant celebration of this modesty garb. It leaves me feeling very isolated from my fellow liberals who I assumed would stand with me in opposing body shaming of women in my culture too. Simultaneously, I can understand that it has become hard to oppose a garment that is causing women to be targeted. My personal solution to this is that I stand in solidarity with hijab and niqab-wearing women when it comes to bigots singling them out because they are visibly Muslim. But I still vehemently oppose the concept of a requirement for women to cover up so as not to invoke lust. Both things can and should be done together. One can show solidarity with hijabis without championing the hijab as some great symbol of liberation, which it clearly isn't as many Muslim girls and women continue to be forced into modesty against their will. Another related issue is that the media gives very little coverage to Muslims who don't look like Muslims. There's so much noise around supporting the hijab that non-hijabi Muslim women are drowned out. This results in very one-dimensional coverage that yet again perpetuates the stereotype that Muslim is synonymous with conservative Muslim. Even Playboy magazine isn't immune to this and had to get in on the hijab celebration. Another example of this misguided support is the Shepherd Fairy poster from the Women's March. An admittedly powerful, iconic poster of a woman in a U.S. flag hijab was displayed as part of a series. 
It was seen as a symbol of resistance, as the anti-Trump. But it's hard for women like me to get behind one symbol of oppression against women to oppose another form of oppression against minorities. So I created some artwork accompanied by a short message explaining that we do indeed need to show solidarity with hijabi Muslim women, but perhaps this wasn't the best method since there are many connotations to such a garment. Not all positive. Despite my clearly liberal sentiments and disclaimers that it was not to be used by people spreading hate towards Muslims, despite my opposition to Trump expressed in the accompanying audio, the post was widely retweeted by Trump fan accounts as well. It seems there's almost nothing we can do to prevent this. Either you suffer in silence under the homophobic, misogynistic, Islamic far-right, or you risk emboldening the anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant Western one. In fact, both LGBT and women's rights in Islamic countries are causes appropriated by the Western far right now. In alt-right, alt-light circles, you'll see gay rights used as a soft white nationalist tactic. It's deeply concerning and sinister that an ideology so troubling can be dressed up as human rights. They champion these causes not in earnest, but as a mere pretext to bash Muslims with. Their trick is to express a faux concern over these things not being up to par in the Islamic world, while having little regard for the same in this part of the world. I cannot tell you how many Western anti-feminists support women's rights when it comes to Islam, but will callously tell Western rape victims that they're privileged because at least they don't live under Sharia. Whether it's accusations of Islamophobia or fears of emboldening anti-Muslim hate, either way, we are silenced. Just like any culture, we too should be able to criticize our own without being branded sellouts, traitors, or Islamophobes. Except, there is one problem. In this complex political climate, there is an actual loss of credibility too as more and more Muslim reformers, ex-Muslims, either get on the Trump train, defend the Muslim ban, or join the alt-right. And on the left, secular liberal Muslims continue to not be adequately represented. The scales are tipped massively towards high visibility of right-wing critics of Islam. Well-known ex-Muslim Breitbart editor Rahim Kassam has said things like, if Merkel took a million rapey migrants, Hillary will take 20 million. Then we also have the red-pilled ex-Muslim types who believe no Muslims are peaceful. Now, I as an ex-Muslim can tell you that this is not representative of all ex-Muslims, obviously, and there are many compassionate, progressive people among us, but the movement has taken undeniable rightward turn without many denouncing the bad actors that are nudging the movement further towards Pepe. This is definitely not what I signed up for. YouTube shows that regularly feature alt-right and alt-light figures will also court ex- and reformist Muslims to come and criticize Islam from their platforms. When you go on Breitbart or Rebel Media or Dave Rubin to criticize Islam, how can you complain that the left won't take your voice seriously? Credibility is a two-way street. 
I would urge my fellow liberals to not champion Islamic conservatism, and I would urge my fellow ex-Muslims and their supporters to not prove critics of the ex-Muslim and Islamic reform movements correct by allying with the Western right or far right. I mean, long ago, people tried to discredit us by calling us right-wing mouthpieces. It hurts to see those criticisms sometimes become a reality. This rightward shift of Islam critics has even produced a Trump-supporting and anti-multiculturalism imam, would you believe? 2017, what a year! This imam, Imam Tawhidi, once put out an 11-step plan to crack down on Wahhabism, a literalist and harsh interpretation of Islam. It sounds reasonable in theory, but it read more like an authoritarian plan to put ordinary Muslims under strict surveillance. Australian media has dubbed him the fake sheikh. And an ABC article states, quote, Unsurprisingly, Tawhidi's tales about Sunni Muslims' shadowy plot to instate a caliphate have been enthusiastically embraced by the far right, including Reclaim Australia, Perhaps less expected is the extent to which Tawhidi himself has courted such groups. In the lead-up to last year's federal election, he made offerings of roses to roadside anti-Muslim Liberty Alliance and One Nation posters, as if the face of Pauline Hansen belonged not to Australia's most recognizable anti-Islam campaigner, but a Titian-haired deity, end quote. He throws around terms like fake news and lying left, reminiscent of Trump himself. I hope that one day, just like Sam B or The Daily Show, progressive Muslims can earnestly push for change and criticize their own without getting lumped in with or enticed by those with an anti-Muslim agenda. Islam is not a monolith, neither are its adherents nor its critics. Just like Islam can be interpreted and practiced in a million different ways, so too can criticism of it come from different angles and politics. It's important to be aware of the general Trump-era anti-Muslim climate, but it's also important not to erase the few secular, liberal, and progressive Muslims that exist. Recognize that people in my position are fighting a battle against bigotry from all angles. And that's all I've got for today. I hope that was useful. Hello, Aina. My name is Ezra. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you quite well. Excellent. So thank you very much for your presentation. My question will require you to do a little bit of uh, a generalization, which I know you none of us likes, but sometimes is uh, useful. Um, can you help me understand uh, what happened with the first generation of uh, Pakistani immigrants to the UK, which were not necessarily all um, or even majority fundamentalists, uh, which I understand many of them originally were not, um, let's say some of them were quite secular, um, but then the second generation uh, quite a bit, or some of them became fundamentalists. In other words, yeah. families that arrive yeah. as secular Muslims yeah. uh, and produce um, second generation children that are fundamentalists. How that happened, and particularly in the case of Pakistani immigrants to the UK? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a great question because 
Pakistani immigrants here in North America are really quite different. And um, believe me, like, you know, pa among Pakistanis also people are very surprised at how extremist, uh, you know, Pakistani immigrants, Muslim immigrants uh, can be in the UK. Now, I'd, obviously, I don't want to generalize for everyone. And of course, there are secular people there as well. Um, but now... If you see that far right movements in the UK usually have a stronger presence than they than they did over here in North America, I think that that really plays into it as well. And I think the less welcome that populations were made to feel, the less they integrate, then they become these closed off insular communities. And then hate breeds hate, really. When you aren't getting outside ideas, when you're sticking to yourselves, and then when you're, uh, you know, made to feel like you're hated against, then it's easy to recruit more people. Like, look, we're victimized, so let's get even more extreme to counter that. Of course, it's not a useful strategy, but that's how people are radicalized. And also, I, I do believe that um, immigrants to the UK were all from one small part of Pakistan, whereas immigrants to North America are diverse, with more education. So things like that do make a difference as well. Hi, my name is Bezad. I'm uh, originally from Iran. And uh, I have a few questions regarding your presentation. Uh, in my opinion, you have some confusion between Islam as a political movement and Islam as ideology of individual belief. And these are my questions. You are referring to majority Muslim country, which is the terminology introduced by right-wing Trump, and everybody follow the same band. How you can mention majority Muslim country in a country that Islam is official religion, and if you abandon your religion, you sentence to death. How you can say in this country majority are Muslim? That's one contradiction. The second, <laughs> I'm not sure said, I understand the issue here. Uh, I think it's a big mistake that we use majority Muslim country in those countries that they don't have any other choice. When I was born, I was named Muslim. Yeah. If I yeah. abandon Islam, I'm sentenced to death. So for right. sure, majority people, they don't have any other choice. <laughs> of no. course, of course, I agree with you. And so that's why are you using this terminology that is totally wrong? Well, no, I don't think it's wrong. It is It is a Muslim country. That's what it is. It's fact. Whether people are given a choice or not to leave, that's an issue I also addressed in the, in the talk. Would you right? that 90% of those people or 100% of those people are Muslim when there is no freedom to abandon the Islam? You're forced to accept Islam. I'm on your side there. I agree. That's a huge Why issue. Why do you think the terminology that there is no truth in it? What would you prefer? I mean, it is a Muslim country. What term, term would you Why prefer? Why all them Muslim country? Have you asked <laughs> all of them that they accept as Islam? And you're free to say that I'm Muslim? I'm using it as a descriptor for the region and what religion is practiced. And I'm not trying to say that everyone 100% buys into everything. Okay. This is something that I'm referring to confusion That's among not activists. confusion. No. What, okay, what, just, give us an alternative. I'll tell you the second contradiction that you have. From one hand, 
you rightfully say hijab is a symbol of submission. And in my perspective from being activist from 1976, yeah. which has been raised by this political movement as it grow, I think it's a symbol of Islamic fascist movement and there is nothing to do with the garment or modesty and bullshit like that. And when you are supporting that, no, no. you ignore as a symbol of political movement. Let me just give you some few facts. For the I first think time, you're talking to somebody else. Maybe you were listening to some other sort of talk because I'm absolutely not supporting that. You seem to have missed the entire point of my speech. So why you are you saying that you're supporting hijab when you're con uh, contradicting the right wing? However, you put that thing as a symbol of submission. What I'm telling you, you should always, if you are believing in it, I don't indicate know. <laughs> hijab as a political symbol for Islamic movement, which is a political movement, the same as fascism. You're telling me things I already know, yeah. though. Like, I don't understand why you're so outraged. I'm already agreeing no, I'm with not, you. I'm just, I'm just trying to put our movement, which you are part of it, which is fighting Islamists as a political movement, not as individual belief and this is what you are facing and this no, is sir what i think you're confusing how hijab is used by the state in countries like iran and saudi arabia with how people wear it here of course it symbolizes something negative and that's what i talked about the whole time through but at the same time there are innocent women who have just been you know taught to do this, being physically attacked. A woman lost her baby because she was kicked in Spain in the stomach because she was wearing a hijab. So trying to spread these extreme messages saying that, you know, this is a symbol of fascism, you're dangerously equating women who just simply wear this with Islam or fascism. That's not accurate at all. I think that's that's one approach. The yeah. other approach is... That's an international you approach. You right have symbol, to... People will be aware that what is the symbol, correct? What do you think I'm doing with Thank my you. artwork and my activism? I'm trying to make people aware of the negative connotations of the symbol, but when you speak so extreme and you try to connect every woman wearing it to fascism, that's dangerous in this political environment. Hi, Ina. I'm, uh, my name is Darwin. Hi, and uh, I've got some positive uh, suggestions that perhaps you might, uh, you may have already considered, and you may have uh, decided not to use them. But I'd like to push them towards you and see what see what you think about them. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm thinking along the lines of um, helping um, helping people, especially in an educational uh, si uh, system, an educational setting, understand the other. And one of the best ways to do that is uh, in Quebec, they have a world religion course. Mm -hmm. uh, every, every student must take it, even if they're homeschooled or in a religiously uh, uh, chartered school. Uh, it's survived court challenges, and it's producing uh, young people that go into CJEP and uh, go into uh, universities and colleges that uh, 
understand the nuances of all the religions from Anglicanism to Zoroastrianism and everything in between. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it helps with the, the ignorance factor that many of us have in the West of, of the other. So I want I, I, this kind of idea has been pushed by uh, such greats and luminaries in, the, in our movement by uh, Tufts University professor um, uh, Daniel Dennett, mm-hmm. uh, the great feminists uh, Christina Hoff Summers and uh, Camille Paglia. And I'm wondering what you think about that particular <laughs> idea. The, sec- the second idea is uh, regarding uh, women's clothing. Um, prior to um, Pakistan or Afghanistan or Turkmenistan or Iran being conquered by Islam, uh, and they were conquered by the sword, they these women had their own cultural clothing. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, think that, I think that that pre-Islamic clothing needs to be more front and center. I want to I want to wish you good luck for what you're doing. We need more women like yourself, more people like yourself to come out and speak the truth for a humane, more um, harmony society that we feel safe to live in. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I was listening to your presentation, and, and one of my critiques about it is you spend too much time criticizing the far right and distinguishing between the far right and the far left. Two of the uh, uh, symbols you pulled up was the Republic of Kekistan and Happy La Frog. That has come off a, a, a board called 4Channel, which years ago, years ago, everybody knew was the underbelly of the Internet. It um, was a channel for kids. Most of what they posted was porn or pictures of cats. Mm-hmm. And uh, four channels like the underbelly for the teenager on the internet. And years ago, where they got started with Anonymous um, was um, when they went after the Scientologists. And that was their first goal. And, and they ran the Scientologists down. They were kids. And, and a lot of their stuff is, has come forth. I mean, it, it's been in inhabited by maybe far right, um, the Republic of Kekistan, Happy Lafrog, this is teenage stuff. This is not teen, no, this, well, like when it's being endorsed by, uh, you know, people like Donald Trump, when he's sending signals to the alt-right, when he's unable to condemn neo-Nazis at a rally properly, I don't think it's, uh, you know, useless to criticize the far right. I'm just saying that, um, here's my point, is you're bringing up stuff that's irrelevant. When you're trying to hit, hit the far right and you're running around with Papula Frog and Texas. How is that irrelevant? That's a symbol that they use. That is childhood stuff. This is rebellious teenager stuff. This isn't, I mean, but, they, but you're acting like it's just nowhere. It's not, it might have started, originated as some unknown comic, but now it's everywhere, and it's not just being used by children, it's being used by the white nationalist movement. It's being designated as a hate symbol by known organizations. It's not just me making it relevant, it's it's relevant to the conversation. If you want to discuss Islam without discussing the far right, that's an imbalanced conversation because it's all tied together. So I don't understand this defensiveness of criticizing something that's like rising in front of our face right now. Well, I, I just find that you're not going to reach the crowds you need to reach if you're going to criticize them. If you want to embrace them, you have to go. I don't want to reach the far right. Like what? Like I don't understand what you're trying to say. Do you think I should be catering to them? I think that you should be catering to the center. And and, and you. Know, Why should I, I be catering to the center? You know, there's a. 
But that's just, that's your view, right? You're just trying to tell me who I should be catering to. That's very strange. Okay, well, that's fine. I, I find your description of modest wear for the hijab is inappropriate. I mean, to suggest that it's modest means to suggest that if I'm without a hijab, I'm in modest. Well, obviously, I disagree with that. How is that not how is that not clear from my presentation? I am a huge critic of the hijab, and I find it disgusting when people make excuses for it. So when I'm calling it modest wear, I'm not saying that I approve of these modesty requirements. I'm a huge critic of them. I'm using okay. the terminology sure, that people I, use I, for I, it. My, my issue with the presentation was to even hear it described as modest wear. It should be de defined as this is considered modest wear by religious people. It does not mean it's modest wear. To me, the hijab is a political symbol. Absolutely, I agree, and I've even mentioned that in many of my other pieces, but I'm not going to cram everything I believe into one half-hour talk. I have so many harsh critiques of Islamic requirements for women to be modest. On my blog, you can look them up. That it's 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 sort of funny that <laughs> that you thought for a second that I believe that women should be modest. That I'm approving of this concept. Like everything I say is disapproving of it. Hi there, it's uh, Dan here. Uh, we're coming up to uh, we've run out of time for any more questions. Um, I do want to uh, thank you very much. This whole topic is not one that's easily understood, and finding the um, the right or the, the correct is the correct way of looking at all of this seems to be a challenge. Uh, on one hand, I can criticize Islam, but if I say something publicly, I'd be Islamophobe. And so yeah. it's really difficult to find um, the right way of talking about this. Um, it's good to have spoken with you. Um, you're very much in the in the uh, in the issue. Um, I think you sort of highlighted the difficulty that there is in addressing the, uh, the criticism to against Islam, against um, against the left, and so on and so forth. So, um, thank you very much for this. And on behalf of the association, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you. Well, thank okay. you very much for having me. Well, it was great. It really was. Give me a lot to think about. And I'll check out your, um, you have a channel, right? Actually. Yeah, I have a podcast called Polite Conversations. Absolutely. Thank you very much. You have a good day. Now. All right. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of Polite Conversations. You can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it, making some noise about it, or contributing via Patreon patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes no ian mangoes also you can follow me on twitter at nice mangoes if you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly patreon one you can do so via paypal nice mangoes.blog at gmail.com remember no ian mangoes if you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest you can email me there too a special thanks to dylan beck for theme music, sound, and production help. <laughs>